0: So I, I was thinking about this account with the scroll that's revealed here in Revelation 5 since last week. And I was thinking about something that probably most of you guys know nothing about at all, which I'm, I'm thankful that's the case, actually, because it benefits me as well. But when I was your guys' age in the, in the 90s, and this was especially true in the 80s as well, uh, but the time that it would take for a movie to go from the theater to... To be able to like be purchased in a store, so you could watch it and bring it home, would take like at least six months. You've for four. I would say like a, for me, it seemed like at least six months. It seemed like it would take forever. And so, if you really liked a movie, it was a significant amount of time that you had to wait for it to come out so that you could watch it at home. And nowadays, I mean, digital downloads are available available even while the movie is still in the theater, and sometimes streaming services have the movie available even like the same day that it comes out in the theater. It's a much different world, but Even at that length of time they had to wait, that's nothing compared to what we see with this scroll here. The message in the book that was given to Daniel some 700 years before Revelation was written had its message shut up, it had its seals. We talked about that last week. He had to seal it, and it wasn't open, it wasn't to be open until the time of the end. We read in Daniel chapter 12. And so, in John, now, if you remember, when this scroll with the seven seals is shown to him on the outstretched hand of God, as it were, the father, uh, laying on it for someone who was worthy to, to take it, anyone who was who was able to, to take the scroll, do you remember how he responded? He he weeps loudly, we read, in, in Revelation chapter 5. We don't, well, somebody asked him. We don't know how long he was going through that reaction, but that all stops when a message from an elder reaches him. But 700 years took place, between these two events, with Daniel and what's happening here in Revelation chapter five, and in that time span, a promised one, a worthy one emerged. So let's take up our study in this book once more. We're going to read it all again. So if you have the Bible, we'll be in Revelation chapter five. You don't, you could just listen if you like, or you can follow along if you do have a copy of, of the Bible with you. And we're not going to deal with the whole text tonight. We'll get through about um, verse. Verse seven, and then um, that that'll be our main focus for this evening. So the reading of God's word beginning at verse one in Revelation five. And remember too, by the way, this is this is a continuation of the same vision that he started to see in, in chapter four. Okay, so it says, "Then I saw on the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll ripped in within and on the back sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is was worthy to open the scroll and break its seals." As though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, by and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth then i looked and i heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every and i heard every creature in heaven and on earth and in under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. That ends the reading of God's Holy Inspired and Sufficient Word. Let's let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant us understanding, that you would sanctify us through the Study of your Word, that it would be a means of grace unto us being all the more conformed to Christ. may you be glorified in it in Jesus name. Amen. Okay so last week I spent the majority of our time just looking at verse one because I wanted us to be clear about what was going on with the, with the putting forth of this scroll because it's an important part this this scroll is setting up the vision and what we're supposed to take from it. so I wanted us to get as much as we could out of understanding the details surrounding the giving of this scroll, seeing, understanding what it is that John saw. But with that established last week, we still have not answered the critical questions. There's there's two critical questions. What is on this scroll, actually, and why is no one able to open it? And if we answer the first question, the former question, then we should be able to answer the last question to the latter question as well. So now remember last week, we compared this event to of John watching this interaction with the scroll with the two accounts of scrolls or books in the Old Testament especially, um, Ezekiel's account and then also Daniel's account. Both Ezekiel and Daniel either received a scroll or a book and from God that contained details about God's redemptive plans. So, given the fact that the scroll in Ezekiel's vision had to do with God's covenantal promises to his people... And then also given the fact that Daniel's prophecy, which was sealed until the time of the end, we read that in Daniel chapter 12, that it had to do with the resurrection from the dead and the redemption and the purification of God's saints in the person of Christ. We then have every reason to believe that the scroll mentioned here in John's vision describes events which are associated with the final chapters of redemptive history. And so don't don't miss this then. But the main theme of the book of Revelation is about God and his glory. And God's glory is made manifest to all, for all to see through the redemption accomplished by the Lamb, the one who's worthy to open the scroll. And furthermore, we need to keep in mind that the, the big picture of the story of, of God's redemptive story, this story that's in, that has been unfolding ever since, well, really since creation, but specifically since the fall, since when Adam rebelled. We're seeing a, a super pulled back view of the redemptive story here in Revelation chapter 4, or chapter 5. And so remember that God promised to Adam in the garden that he would reign over all the earth if he obeyed the terms of the covenant of works there in the garden. Essentially, you know, we sum it up, he basically said to Adam, Do this and live, uh, take dominion, multiply, and don't eat from this one specific tree. And Adam. Did not do what he was supposed to do, we know that, and he ate. And as a result, from eating from that specific forbidden tree, he plunged the entire human race into sin and death, bringing God's curses down upon all of humanity and what Adam was supposed to have dominion over, which was, you know, all the whole created order that took place when God spoke there in Genesis 1. And so Jesus Christ, therefore, came as the second Adam, he came to the earth. It wasn't some random, you know, chance thing. It wasn't it, it was the it was the intent plan of God for him to come as the second Adam, the one who will by his life and death and resurrection would would undo for the elect and the creation in general the damage brought upon the human race by the fall. So the scroll that we're seeing here that again at first no one's worthy to open it but then all of a sudden we we see someone who is worthy to open it that scroll must contain information about how this final redemption of all things come to pass the, the scroll therefore contains the record of future things which must take place so that God's will is done upon the earth and like all of God's dealings with mankind the contents of the scroll would have to be covenantal. There they has to be a covenantal aspect to him. God, when he deals with humanity, he deals with us through covenants. We've talked about what a covenant is for. To put it just as plain as can be, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And these, you know, the covenants in the Bible that we see are, are a covenant that God makes with Adam in the garden, in which Adam is a... A, what we call a federal head, and his loyalty to the covenantal terms has consequence for everyone that he represents, which is all of humanity. God makes a covenant with Noah, right? And that covenant is is also, has implications for everyone living on the earth at all times. Then God makes a covenant with Abraham, and it's unique to him and to his uh, progeny, his his relatives, people that are related to him, then through Moses, then through David, and then finally a covenant with Christ that we call the new covenant or the covenant of grace. And and one other covenant that I'll mention later to, this evening about uh, among God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so the contents of this scroll and, and in all those covenants, God is dealing at, with his creation as the creator through these covenantal terms in which he is Lord over and which he establishes. And he is, you know, he's gracious to give them at all, but they're all, they're not all exactly the same kind of covenant. They're different covenants. Most of them are covenants of works, except for the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace. And so because the reality is that God deals with all humanity through covenants, the contents of this scroll Would be covenantal as well. Because the things to be revealed will not only tell God's people about God's dominion over all the earth and the promised covenantal inheritance for all of his people, the scroll will reveal details of God's judgment upon all of those who have broken his covenant and those who are under a curse, The, the curse that came upon creation with Adam. And so the themes of blessing and cursing reappear yet again in in God's word, and so we can safely assume that the scroll is a covenant declaration or a testament of the Lamb, specifically as to how he will bring redemptive history to its glorious and its final climax. This had been given to Daniel first, or initially, but the angel commanded it to be sealed, He commanded the the words of it, the content of it, to be shut up until the time of the end. And since the scroll contains information about the final chapters of redemptive history, it can't just be opened by anyone. Since all the promises contained in it are, are related to God's promises of a redeemed people. And when it was given to Daniel, it was sealed at that time. And no one was then able to open the contents of it because of human sin. No one was worthy to open the scroll because everyone was under the curse. Everyone but one person in the course of human history, that is, only Jesus Christ. Only Christ Jesus is the only man. And we know, of course, that he's more than just man. He's true God as well, at the same time. We call the, the hypostatic union, that Jesus is true man and true God, but he's true man. And he didn't have any sin in him at all. And so he's the lamb who was slain, who is both God and man and he's able to earn the promised inheritance by fulfilling what God demands of his people under the covenant of works and their restatement in the 10 commandments when when Moses was given the 10 commandments and the moral the moral law remember it's different than how he gave him the rest of the laws to Israel what was who do you guys need to remember I'll ask you this do you remember how God gave the Ten Commandments in such a way that was different from the other commandments, like the civil laws and the ceremonial laws. What was different about those ten? You know? Do you remember? I don't know what that sign was. (laughs) He he used his own finger, right? He used his own finger to write them on tablets of stone. After he did that, you know, Moses and the whole community of Israel heard it and they trembled and they were fearful and they still acted inappropriately after that. But after that, you know, it was just this interaction between God and Moses where he was giving him the rest of the laws through, through the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant for the nation of Israel. But the the reason for that is because those 10 commandments, they are a restatement of the covenant of works In the garden that God made with Adam. In in essence, in other words, what the holy nature of those Ten Commandments are, and we know what the Ten Commandments are um, the first four relating to how we should deal with God, the second half of them, the last six, speaking towards how we relate to one another they all were principles of God's nature that existed in the garden. In other words, if, if Adam would have not ate from the tree, he would have been faithful to the Ten Commandments. If he would have done the things that God instructed him to do, taking dominion over the land, multiplying and obeying his word and worshiping through all that, he would have been faithful to keep the law as revealed in the Ten Commandments. And so God, in his kindness, reveals those Ten Commandments uh, specifically to Moses. And then we see Adam who was also called the son of God in Luke's gospel. And when he gives the genealogy, Israel is called the son of God in Hosea chapter 11. Pastor Nick will get there eventually on Sunday mornings. And so think about it, both Adam and Israel, excuse me, failed to uphold the covenant promises before them. But at the end of the day, according to God's divine plan and message, they were both types pointing to God's only eternal begotten son, the one who doesn't transgress God's law and violate the covenant that explains why it is only that jesus christ is worthy to open the scroll and that no one else is he's the worthy one for he alone kept god's law perfectly and is without sin adam failed in that israel failed in that jesus did not and so for the reason that's why john weeps about the possibility of the scroll remaining sealed which you know is kind of weird because you would think john knows that jesus is the redeemer and so he wouldn't you know cry because he knows who's worthy But, of of course, he does cry. Verse 4, he weeps loudly even, um, though by this time he knows that Jesus is the redeemer of God's people. But John, in this vision, he's seen a pulled-back view of all of redemptive history. And so for much of creation's history, they didn't fully understand what would happen in the last days because God had veiled these things before them. They understood much, especially those who were saved. I mean, Jesus said that both Moses and Abraham looked forward to his day, for example. But the mystery of Christ and how the gospel would spread to the nations, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 3, that was not revealed until the time of the apostles. And so for much of the history of God's people, they lived without access to this information because the scroll was sealed. Why? Because Jesus hadn't come to do his work yet. He hadn't come to do the work that he was destined to do. But once the seal is open. And Jesus has done his work of making atonement. And then in the resurrection, making sure the elect's justification is sure, then then God's people are permitted to see God's purposes for the final chapters of redemptive history. But John's weeping is symbolic or significant towards the fact that there was – people had to wait a long time. I mean from the fall. They had to wait a really long time, about 4,000 years, before they were able to figure out what God's plan was. And so john's weeping is 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 showing us that you know the the how much better really we have it now living in this new covenant age, the messianic age, because we see these things, we know these things because this is needed information for the saints who are living in the final chapter of redemptive history, that would include us as well as well as the original recipients of the letter, because even in the midst of earthly struggles with with and and war with the beast, which we'll read about in coming chapters they will see and understand that God has a purpose for everything. Everything that comes to pass, God has a purpose for, and that God's will cannot be thwarted. And even despite the wrath of the beast who wages war upon the saints, God's eternal decree will still come to pass. His will will be done. And we're glad that's the case. And so it's glorious to news news to John then, when according to verse 5, one of the elders said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Not only is Jesus worthy to open the scroll, the elders, this this elder, remember uh, the elders, they were representative of God's people. They confessed Christ as all God's people do. And so the elder goes on to describe the, in the lamb in terms of his messianic glory. So notice those titles that are ascribed to Jesus here in, in verse five. Jesus is the... Lion of the tribe of Judah, which is foretold in Genesis 49. Okay, this is initially spoken of Judah. Uh, Judah, he's one of the 12 um, brothers that Jacob, the, the 12 sons that Jacob has. And at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob pronounces blessing upon his children. It was a common thing for the patriarch to do, Israel. And So this is Genesis 49 eight through 10. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So whereas Jacob promised or prophesied and blessed his children and that stuff that we read was true of Judah, you know, in a prophetic sense and term, the reality that we should see here in revelation is that we're being told that Jesus is the greater Judah. He's from his lineage as Hebrew seven also affirms, but even more, he, he's, he's the one who that prophecy about Judah is really about. He's the one whose scepter will never uh, fail. And there's more here as well. Um, Jesus is the root of David predicted in Isaiah 11. He's who Isaiah or Isaiah prophesied about. Uh, you don't need to turn there. Let me, I'll just read it for you. Isaiah eleven one: there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit kind of weird sounding, right? But just picture the imagery. There's a a stump, a tree that's been cut off, and from that stump will come a shoot, uh, something will grow out of it. A branch, and it says, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Then verse 10 in Isaiah 11 says, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So that was a, a prophecy about Jesus way back in Isaiah, Isaiah's day which was about like 600 years before Jesus would come. The shoot of Jesse isn't simply David or Solomon, you see. Uh, David is the son of Jesse, that's true. Solomon is the son of David, that's true. But the shoot of Jesse that's being spoken of in Isaiah 11, that's Christ. He's the king promised in the Davidic covenant. He grew up, as it were, from that stump. But there's even more being said here because Jesus is the root of David. In Revelation five, not simply the shoot of him. Remember, a shoot is like a, like a young branch that grows out of a main source. And so, for Jesus to be the shoot of Jesse is to say that he descended from him according to his humanity, which is what you know Luke and Matthew both tell us as well. But the root of David is what we read here, and the root is what supports the stump, isn't it? It gives life to the stump. It gives life to the whole tree. And so in Revelation 5, it's the root of David, not the root of Jesse as it is in Isaiah 11. And so the Holy Spirit, though, what is happening here is he's tying that messianic prophecy here back in Isaiah to the Davidic covenant that was given in, I think, his first kings. And he's showing us that Christ is the promised king who rules and has authority over the people. Christ Jesus is the worthy one. That's all tied back together here in John's Revelation, the the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so in his resurrection from the dead, Christ has triumphed over humanity's greatest enemy, death and the grave. He's beat both. And therefore, Jesus has fulfilled the glorious messianic prophecies, which speak of God's chosen one, overcoming his enemies and exercising his judgment upon them. And Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll and its seals. The language used here by John is very important. Christ's triumph is not something which lies like in a distant future at a a second advent. But because of the cross and the empty tomb, Christ's victory over Satan is an already accomplished fact. We're not waiting for Jesus to have victory until he comes again. Because he's going to come again. We're still waiting for that promise. I know we were thinking earlier about the time span that, you know, God's people had to wait for uh, in between the giving of that scroll to Daniel and until when it was been able to be read here in um, the revelation to John. That's 700 years, but we've been waiting over 2,000 years now for Christ to come back, or almost 2,000 years. He, He will come back. But the point of John's language here is to show that Jesus already has victory over Satan. It's an accomplished fact. With the unsealing of this scroll, The time has now come for the conquering one to execute his righteous judgments on behalf of his people. And the nature of these righteous judgments shall be revealed when the seals are opened, which we'll get to in chapter 6, and when Christ's victory over Satan is explained in the following chapters. So having heard this declaration from the elder, John now describes what happens next. His attention shifts a little bit. Verse 6 begins like this. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, stop there for a second. That's an interesting placement, I think. He's among the elders. Remember also from chapter one, that Jesus was in the midst of the lampstands, and the lampstands were representative of the seven churches, and the seven churches were representative of all the churches uh, churches that Christ is in the midst of every true church then. And now here in the second vision cycle, he's among the elders, among, in the midst of, The same thing is being said here. And if you remember, the 24 elders are representative of the people of God in both the old covenant and the new covenant. And so again, this is a way of encouraging the church and reminding us that Christ is with us in this age. He's among his people. Though Christ our Lord has ascended, he's still with his people. And so also, not only do the elders and living creatures worship him who, who sits on the throne, they also worship the Lamb. The fact that the lamb who was slain not only ties his redemptive work to all of God's covenant promises made throughout redemptive history, such as events like like the Passover and all the sacrificial animals that had to die um, within the old covenant system, those were all types that pointed to Christ and his work. But as Isaiah prophesied of God's suffering servant as well, he is like a sheep who goes to the slaughter. Without silent, without speaking, without complaining, like a lamb with the slaughter, silently. Ironically, then, and this confounds the lost even today, the lamb conquers by dying. The Lord God gains victory through what looks like defeat. As soon as the enemy had thought that he won, his L was all already sealed for eternity. And this very point explains why it is that unless we are granted understanding by these mysteries through the Holy Spirit and, you know, like given ears to hear and eyes to see as we read in Isaiah or in the gospels as well, the things in this book will remain utterly mysterious to us apart from the eyes and ears of faith. It's impossible to understand that Christ's ultimate victory must come through his death and resurrection. But how does a lamb that's been slain stand? Well, the lamb has been killed. But it's not dead. He's alive, of course, and that lamb is Christ, not a literal lamb. Remember, John isn't giving us a literal description of what he's seeing here. He's explaining theological truths through the symbols in the vision. And so Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that was required to make atonement. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We'll read that in Revelation 13. He's at the throne of the right hand of the Father. And then John also describes the lamb as follows. He says that he has seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set down to all the earth. So the image of the horns suggests like, I mean, if, you're, if you want to, again, we're not technically supposed to like do an image in our mind, but that's because that's not what John's accomplishing here. But I mean, that would look weird, right? A lamb with seven horns. Yeah, that, that reaffirms for us here that we're not supposed to see something literal here because rams don't have seven horns. But what is he saying then? Um, the imagery of horns of horns suggests the idea of conquest, of victory. And we're going to see this later in Revelation 2, more discussion of horns on the things that John sees. But since the number is seven, when used in the book of Revelation, seven, remember, symbolizes perfection or fullness. The seven horns here indicate then the fullness of his triumph over death in the grave. That's why his death is emphasized here. That's why it's the lamb as slain though standing and alive. Because in his atoning sacrificial death, he has full and complete triumph over the grave. By his death, he has that victory. Those horns are symbolizing that. John's reference to the lamb's seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, are images once again drawn from the third and fourth chapter of Zechariah and his prophecy. The seven lamps and the seven eyes of Zechariah's prophecy are Old Testament pictures of the the blessed Holy Spirit who is omnipresent and all-powerful, just like the other subsistences of God or the other persons of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, because those are characteristics of the divine essence. The Holy Spirit is also all-powerful and all-knowing. And so the number of seven of them is reminding us of the, the perfection and the fullness of the Spirit's power and knowledge. Before the dawn of the Messianic age, the sevenfold spirit appears before the throne. But now, after the conquest of the Lamb and the dawn of the new creation, the blessed Holy Spirit goes out to the ends of the earth to execute God's sovereign decree. Remember, that's what it says there. The, the seven eyes, are the seven, um, excuse me, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, it's sent out. So in this, John sees the spread of the kingdom of God unto the ends of the earth, and the fact that the Holy Spirit will empower Christ's church to preach the gospel as the means by which Christ's kingdom will advance. This is alluding to part of the covenant of redemption. That's that covenant that I didn't mention earlier. It's also known as the pact of salutis, the covenant of or the, the pact of salvation. And we see evidence of this covenant, or better said, this plan of God in the pages of scripture. So for example, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished. Or when he says, I will lose none of what the father has given to me. There's other examples as well. But exactly what is finished? Or when did the father promise to give the son a people? Those details aren't set forth explicitly in scripture, but by good and necessary consequence, we can see that there is this pact between Father, Son, and Spirit to save a people. And this has to do with God's eternal decree. Again, we're going to see that in Revelation 13. Jesus called the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Well, was Jesus killed before the as a sacrificial lamb even before the world was created? He wasn't, right? He, how could he be? He didn't have a human body at that point. either, And so... What it's showing us, though, is that this is part of this eternal decree, this plan, this pactum salutis, to save people. It's even before the people actually existed, this plan existed. And now that Jesus is killed and then raised from the grave and exalted to heaven, the Holy Spirit's role in the pactum salutis is highlighted. The Holy Spirit goes out to the ends of the earth over time to regenerate the elect. He is he was doing that in specific places in Israel already, and even before Israel, to whom God would um, choose. But now, through the church, he's carried out, the, the gospel message is carried out to the ends of the earth. The The pledge of the Father and the covenant of redemption, Gerhardus Voss, um, makes a statement about what the accomplishment of the Son achieved. He says, that through his exaltation and, and his ascension, meaning Jesus's, and when he brought his perfect sacrifice into the heavenly sanctuary, he would, on be, he would be able on behalf of the Father to send the Holy Spirit in a special manner for the formation of the body of his people. That's what's being expressed here by the fact that this lamb slain has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, which are sent to the ends of the earth. The, the ministry of the Holy Spirit now because Jesus has done what he was um what he was to do in the covenant of redemption to redeem sinners. And then in verse seven, he says he's declared to be worthy to open the scroll. The Lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The echo here from Daniel seven, thirteen to fourteen is inescapable. So listen to what Daniel says in Daniel seven thirteen to fourteen. Um, this is exactly what we have going on here right now, too. <clears throat> Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days who was, and was presented before him. And to him, meaning to, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. John and John and Daniel are describing the same scene. The fact the Lamb is worthy enables him to approach God's throne and open the scroll and its seals which will demonstrate his authority and his power over all the earth to establish his kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. Remember when Jesus says that the, the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church. That's what he's talking about. He, his, his kingdom will never be destroyed. He's he's been given dominion over all. He is the king who is over all the kings of the earth, as we read in Revelation 1.5. And when the lamb draws near to the one seated upon the throne, heaven worships him. And right, Consider that next week. There's, there's a number of applications points that we could make from here, I want to just close with just one, okay? So one of the things that's coming clear to us in this apocalypse of Jesus is the nearness of Jesus to his people. The Lord Jesus is near to his people. It's the nearness of Jesus to his church, the people of God who are in covenant with him through the new covenant. In the opening vision in chapter one, we read that Jesus was in the midst of the lampstand and the lampstands were the seven churches. And then in chapters two and three, there's intimate details that the, the Lord Jesus expresses about the seven individual congregations that represent all the church in this messianic age. And then in the second vision, in chapter four, we're introduced to this group of 24 elders that are around the throne, and they represent, or they're representative of all of God's people, the true people of God in both the old and the new covenants. And in chapter five, we read that Jesus is among these elders. And he's, he's, he's said to be among the elders and in the midst of the churches for two good reasons. For one, eternal the eternal God who is Jesus, the eternally begotten Son, entered into his creation to save his people. John 1 says that the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. He came to be with his people. And he did what Adam failed to do. He did what you can never hope to do. He lived a holy life and he never sinned. His life was then offered on the cross so that an exchange could be made. An exchange could take place so that he could take the penalty that all of your sin deserved and in exchange give to you his righteousness so that you could stand before the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and not die. And you could be even more than that, declared righteous. You understand, right, that if you're a Christian here this evening, that if you, if you, that you are then accepted in the beloved, accepted by God in Christ. That your union with Christ is the sufficient means of your justification. That you don't have to earn your place before God because Christ earned it for you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not Jesus plus your good works is the way, truth, in in the life. Jesus is that all by himself. And so the gospel sets you free, free to live and to pursue righteousness out of thankfulness and joy for God's mercy in your life. And because that's true as well, Christ is always with us. He's with us by his spirit whom he has given to us. He's among the people of God. He's in the midst of his churches and he's always that. Turn with me to Matthew 28 if your Bible is still open. I want you to see this especially. This is commonly known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just a a Baptist thing. It's a Christian thing. It says all, every Christian's, I guess, marching orders, you could say. I want you to especially, especially see verse 20, but beginning at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. All authority. Okay. Then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's describing here, actually, what we've been studying tonight. He's the worthy one who was able to open the scroll. And then since he's that worthy one, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. He's opened the scroll and the spirit is going to the edges of the of the earth. How exactly? By the church who fulfills the great commission through the preaching of God's word. But notice verse 20, the end of it. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, Christ is among the, the elders. He's in the midst of of the lampstands those those two things that are supposed to be representing the church and the the people of god in the old and new covenants friends no matter what it is that you're going through no matter what (laughs) sin it is that you're struggling against and feeling like you're even losing against whatever the trial that it is before you even if that trial could lead to our deaths the the promise from christ doesn't change he's been communicating that to us in revelation Um, When we intercede for our friends and loved ones, we never need to pray that Jesus would be with them. You hear people do that all the time. I just kind of think about it in my head, I guess, because the reality is is that if they're a Christian, he's already with them. And if he's not with them, then we should be praying for their salvation, really, because Jesus is with his people. He's with us to the end of the age. He's in the midst of his churches. You know, you wouldn't ask, you wouldn't pray and ask Jesus to atone for his people, would we? We wouldn't even ask him to intercede for his people. We wouldn't do that because we know that he already is, he already has made atonement for his people. We wouldn't do that because we know that he lives to make intercession for us, according to Hebrews 7 and 8. Instead, when we pray about those things, we thank him for those things. We thank him for making atonement for us. We thank him for interceding for us, especially when we are weak. And the apocalypse here is helping us to see, even though it is common today for people to pray for Jesus to be with someone, that we don't need to do that. He is with us. We can thank Jesus for being with whoever it is. We can thank Jesus for being with Sandy right now. She's dealing with this cancer that is most likely going to be the means that takes her home to heaven. We could thank Jesus for being with Chris through the cancer that he's having to, 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 deal with and go through. We can thank Jesus for being with us through the different sins and the, being the struggles that we're going through because he's promised to be with us. So we should, we should thank him for that. And the apocalypse has been teaching us that. So we have um next week to, to look at The, the worship that happens of Jesus here after, um, he's opened the scroll and he's taken it. And that's, I'm excited to get to that, but let's pray. And then we'll take any questions if you have any. Lord God, we praise you for the plan of salvation, knowing, Lord, that we could not save ourselves, uh, knowing that we wouldn't even desire to be saved, um, we wouldn't even really know that that's something that we needed if you didn't operate in the manner that you chose and so we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your plan of redemption in which you sent jesus to live the life that we could not and to take the death that we deserve and then we praise you father and spirit for raising him on the third day in the course of the scriptures so that All who trust in him can be sure of the salvation that you have provided. We're so grateful as well, Jesus, that you are always with us. May we never forget that. May that be motivation as well, even for us to pursue holiness. But more than all, more than that even, may it be motivation for us to be grateful and thankful that you, the God who created everything, the God who is transcendent, is so near to us. So We praise you and we need you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, anything I could do to make any of that clear if something wasn't making sense? Anything I could elaborate on? Papyrus scroll or? Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to, to describe, but he, so John does, I think, see something he's given this vision, but the vision is such that he's not actually describing to us. This is a feature of apocalyptic literature that he's not actually describing to us exactly what he sees. He's describing to us what is true. Through symbols, and so like like I said, so he doesn't see a lamb that's all bloody that's standing and has seven literal horns and seven eyes that are somehow you know going out from him into all the earth he's expressing what is being revealed to him in this vision, which are these theological truths. And he's writing them in this descriptive way that was a popular form of literature two thousand years ago. This apocalyptic literature that's not really um, popular now. If you remember, this was this is our twenty-fifth sermon. This I think I might have mentioned in the first sermon that the only thing that kind of comes close to apocalyptic literature for us today are like political cartoons. Sometimes if you see political cartoons, like you'll see like a donkey representing the Democratic Party, and it'll be sitting like on a like a giant bomb or something like that. Well, is the Democratic Party, is there a donkey really on a bomb? Yes. Stop it. No, no, but what they're trying to say is, oh, the Democratic Party is destroying the United States of America or something like that, right? Yeah, but that, that's the only thing, that's the closest thing that we have to it today. And I mean, are you guys looking at political cartoons a lot? I'm not. I don't, oh, Christian is. Yeah, well, that's just, you know, I know some. I am to to understand what a a culture. well i I guess so yeah I guess I guess so remember too that so the 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 vision from chapter four and chapter five is this pulled back vision of creation start to finish, and so like he's seen. How much does he see? How long does this vision really last? Is he like writing down everything that he could have saw? Or is he just contained down certain parts? Does he get the whole vision? And then does he, does it stop? And then does he write? Or is he writing it down as it happens? Like those things, I don't know. Either way, we know that we get scripture as people were inspired or they're carried about by the Holy Spirit. So that's how they're able to say what they need to say because God's um, you know, inspiring them to do so. Right. Yeah. So yeah, he's got he has here what we need to know. But yeah, I, I don't know exactly if that's exactly what he's seeing or if it's somehow just being expressed another way. But yeah, Adam. How is it wrong for us to picture Jesus in our minds? But it's okay for John to vividly describe him, physic like as a physical thing. Yeah, I understand that tension. So I guess when I think about it myself, John doesn't actually describe what he actually physically looks like. He's describing him theologically, who he is and what he's done, right? So by saying here, and it's clearly he's talking about Jesus, by saying he's the there's a lamb slain with these horns and these eyes, he's not telling us to think about what God looks like. He's telling us to think about what God has done. He's died for you does that make sense because we just don't know i mean and and the the reality of it too is actually john knows what jesus actually looked like Uh, he was the disciple who like you know who loved him or was loved by him he leaned up on his you know chest and that one thing he ran to the tomb he ran faster than peter i mean he knows what jesus actually looked like anyways but he doesn't he's not describing that for us and the reason for that is because god is although jesus is Obviously, God, um, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and that divine essence can't be captured by the, the creation. So, good questions. That makes sense. Yeah. Jesus is among us, right? That sounds a little sus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a video game right i don't know he's in the midst of us if you're a christian you know if you're trusting in christ All right, i think we could stop there <laughs> good job guys.